Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. I am so pleased to meet all of you today. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and working, teaching in Japan. And I'm also the CEO and Chief Diversity Officer of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Enjoy is a Japan-based, global-facing business working in English, Japanese, and French. And we are committed to providing research, policy, and evidence-based diversity, equity, and innovation training and education to leaders and corporations. We see value in the importance of intersectional diversity, accessibility, and of democratizing forms of innovation so that we can build vibrancy and holistic well-being into our people, systems everywhere, all the time. This live stream shines a spotlight on the beautiful diversity of Enjoy DNI thought partners who are each making individual efforts to bring inclusive, diversity positive, and gender equal leadership into the world in their own unique way. How are we doing that? Well, one of the things we want to show today is uh, the value of the concept and practice of thought partnering out loud. I learned about this practice uh, several years ago from a leadership coach named Izumi Yamamoto in Seattle, who I had the pleasure of learning from. And it stuck with me as such an important part of lifelong learning and as a practice of solidarity building with and through the rich experiences and insights of others. And I've decided to make it a pillar of how Enjoy as a business that is committed to democratization and solidarity building, committed to reciprocal giving of ourselves and respect for differences across, uh, you know, leaders, stakeholders, actors in our networks, both here in Japan and across Asia Pacific, to try and role model this more and make it public in the world. Mierukasuru in Japanese, we would say. Basically, each week, I'm going to invite one of my Enjoy uh, DNI collaborators and thought partners. There's about 100 in this network. And um, I will be showing up with them. We'll just be human beings, individuals, minus the business card, throw the meishi out the door, minus our senpai kohai relationships, uh, and really in defiance of the various, you know, what are often toxic, gendered, racializing, age-based, ability-based hierarchies that our societies, despite being democracies, keep perpetuating through our laws and our policies and our norms and our culture. So we want to show up today in a horizontal relationship based on respect for ourselves, our individualities, our diversities, and to thought partner uh, across our radical individuality out loud, real time. So through this, we will enjoy a collegial exchange of expertise, you know, worldviews, identities, experiences. And this will be a very intentional act of thought partnering out loud to learn from, learn from each other, gain awareness, and uh, enrich our understanding of the complexities of the other person, because there's so many gray zones of the human experience and of each other's lived realities here on earth. And in this particularly unique moment in 2021, during a global pandemic that seems to not end. So Enjoy's mission as a company is to try and, you know, bring this live stream forward. Um, and uh, I guess one of my observations has been that for the last 20 years of studying political philosophy and critical theories and, and thinking about, you know, how do we move the dial on happiness and well-being? And I guess I, I've been feeling that one of the reasons I pivoted out of academia was to try and build a company that could maybe bring political philosophy and the fun and the creativity of political philosophy back into the world, uh, maybe through business, um, so that we could have more time for reflecting on our human experience. How do we build you know, new systems uh, and build the good life for all of us um, and take that time to engage with these broader, broader explorations? of the purpose of our, our existence and our journey uh, into well-being and thriving here on earth. So in my experience, you know, political philosophy, citizenship studies, diversity studies, civics, ethics, all of these interesting knowledge systems and practices and thoughts, and um, they really can help us build resilient happiness, well-being, and a mutually supporting togetherness here, both for emotional, physical, and our environmental needs as a species, where hopefully we can find a more thriving interdependence and balance. So political philosophy is core to nourishing my soul, and I hope that we can deliver a little bit of that through this live stream today. Uh, I invite you to take just 55 minutes to join us in our journey of seeking out these nuances in ourselves and our, in each other. Uh, to find enjoyment in the rich diversity that really is a blessing, a blessing to our families, our colleagues, our friends, and that stands to enrich us immensely. And it's a driver also of innovation when it is supported by equality, equity, and ties of solidarity. So let us be open today to the gray zones, uh, the gray zones around race, gender, ability, nationality, language, sexual orientation, professional expertise, whatever it is. Let us move away from judgmental absolutes 
the black white or totalitarian dictates about who we are and what boxes we fit in. Let us find time for those in-between spaces of our identities that make, in fact, I think the project of democratic self-government so exciting. And so with pursuing in solidarity with one another, and it can be pursued in every space of democracy, in our homes, in our couple, in our bedrooms, in our workplaces, our communities, our countries, and of course, through our transnational social justice and global sustainability networks. With that, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you my first guest, for volume one, uh, for those who know me, this individual needs very little introduction. For those who don't know me, Mr. Mitz Matsushita is uh, the thought partner of all thought partners in my life. Um, he is such a, an incredibly generous and caring individual who shows up for me every single day for all of my crazy ideas, all of my diversity feminist visionings and goals and my democratic projects and volunteerism and for enjoy this new journey, enjoy diversity and innovation is trying to bring into the world. And so, yes, we are literally here, um, <laughs> remote work from home here in Northern Nagano, uh, joining this live stream together, but from our separate home offices uh, within the same house. So Mitz, welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation, and thank you for joining me today for this volume one of Thought Partnering Out Loud. I'm so glad to be sharing it. Hi, great, great pleasure and honor to be here and, and I guess be the first uh, in this great road that you're traveling on. And I'm more than happy to support you in any way I can. And I, I look forward to this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think today, you know, one of the goals is to sort of do a deep dive into some of your experiences, um, how you understand your, your diversities, uh, your complexities, your gray zones as an individual, both, you know, from your perspective of your time, I guess, living in Canada, and then also your more recent journey into Japan. I wonder if you could just uh, take a moment, give us a, a brief introduction, tell us about, a bit about yourself and what is most important to, to your identities and your sense of self. Sure. Um, I have always called myself, I guess I'm a third generation Japanese Canadian, born and raised in Montreal. For those that you know, Eastern Canada, a uh, French speaking uh, city. So I grew up speaking French and playing hockey, a, a true Canadian. Um, but my full bilingualism ends there. I don't, or I only speak very basic Japanese. Um, so I joke about it in, in here in Japan that I'm bilingual. I'm fully bilingual, but of course they expect it to be Japanese, but no, it's French. Um, my parents uh, were both born and raised in Canada. They are Canadians. But my grandparents, all four grandparents, are Japanese nationals born in Japan. So as a, a third generation, uh, full Japanese, as opposed to, I guess, some are mixed parents, uh, grandparents, half. I think they call it hafu, which was a term I've learned recently. And so, I mean, you've so much of your experience, I guess, maybe you could tell me a bit about when you were in Canada. Did you introduce yourself as a, as a Japanese Canadian? Um, it's an interesting one. Yes, I, I guess I always did say I'm a Japanese Canadian. Um, and I, I, I don't really have the history. And this is maybe a good question from my parents. But again, you know, my name is Mitsuo for the Japanese uh, people. <laughs> um, that like your, your legal name is actually Mitsuo Matsushita. But um, I guess as a youth in Montreal, uh, I was always known as Mits, abbreviated from Mitsuo Mits. And I think everybody called me that, and I assume that's because that's the way I introduced myself. In fact, um, to this day, when I speak to friends from, from Montreal, hey, Meets, how are you doing? I'm still called that. When I moved uh, some 25 years ago or so, I moved from Eastern Canada, Montreal, to Western Canada, Edmonton, uh, primarily an English-speaking province. Um, my name transitioned to Mitz. As, as I use today, as I, I, I introduce myself today as oh. mitts, uh, as in, you know, gloves and mitts. So you, um, I see. So you've gone from being like meat, meats that you would eat, meats to, to mitts. mitts. The mitts and, that and, you'd wear and I was actually winter. oblivious to this. I didn't realize that if I'm talking to somebody in Montreal, I'm meats, but if I today, I'm mitts. And it was you, Jackie, that pointed it out. I think I, I was probably talking to my sister or my sister was saying something and Tatsy said meats. 
and you said to me, why does she say meats? And, I, and it's, it, it triggered the question, which I still don't have the answer to, as to why I'm meats to some people from Montreal or to most people in Montreal, but I'm mitts to everybody else. And that's purely me. I introduced myself that way. Why I transitioned is a mystery. <laughs> Well, and when we met in Ottawa through our Tycho community in Ottawa, I, you know, I, I learned your name as Mitt. Because I had just come from Edmonton. <laughs> right. So after the move to Edmonton, I transitioned to Mitt's and it stuck. Okay. So even today, if I go back to Montreal and I meet somebody first for the first, meet somebody. So your name I'm introduced to somebody for the first time. I'm Mitt's. I'm no longer Mitt. And then now you're in Japan and you're Matsushita-san. Matsushita. I, I <laughs> you're like, who? Who's that? Yeah, I don't know who they're talking to, talking about. I, I mean, we're used to that one. Interesting. Well, and I mean, obviously, naming is obviously a really important part of our identity, and it often does, you know, correlate with our linguist linguistic community and and you know how that gets framed and whether it's you know something that the different populations can can pronounce, right? And so the yes. the whole issue of shortening names that are not standardized Anglophone names in Canada to something that is more easily pronounced by Anglophones often is kind of the what happens, what ends up happening, um, because the, the, it's not intuitive to know how to say Mitsu or with the right pronunciation um, necessarily, unless you're in the Japanese Canadian community, in which case that's a different story. But I know that you have felt strongly about, you know, thinking back on and capturing and documenting your family history. And um, I know we've discussed often about your, the history of your parents and your grandparents. And in the context of, you know, me as a political scientist, I was so fascinated. And going back to my McGill studies, the first thing I, I remember writing an essay on, and I'm not really, maybe it was because I was studying Japanese and so already had that on my radar. But I remember my first essay being about wanting to research uh, the Japanese Canadian internment because I, I didn't understand why that happened happened in, in Canadian politics and, and in that time in history. Um, it didn't make sense to me, given everything I had been learning about, you know, Canadian constitutional protections of equality and diversity. And then I thought, well, wow. And then the history class learning about the internment. And you've mentioned today that you, you would be open to sharing about your parents' um, experience of that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that has affected how that has affected you and, and how you have worked to keep those learnings alive? Well, um, one thing that, and you sort of mentioned, and I, I, I did some, I'm going to say about 10 years ago or so, my father passed away several years ago, but before my father passed away, I traveled down to Toronto where they were living to interview them. And it was, I think, <laughs> other than, you know, one of the best ideas I'd ever had. And it's certainly something that I share, I've shared with many other people. As soon as we start talking about heritage and where you came from, I say, interview your parents while your parents are still with us. I sent my parents a list of questions and we tried to stay in chronological order because the question of where did your parents meet? Uh, why did your parents or what happened? Certainly for us, the the whole intern during the war was a, is a big part of the their growing up. So I had no idea growing up uh, any of that history. I didn't understand anything about it. So I interviewed them and I got a lot of that information, which was eye-opening, not only from the intern being interned part of it, but also just, you know, how did my mom end up from here to here to here? And where did my parents meet? Was uh, terrifically in insightful. But to touch on what you asked, Jackie, um, the the one thing I think I take away from, I personally took away from, you know, having talked to my parents about the, the being interned was that they didn't hold a grudge. Yes, it was a horrible thing. And for those that don't know, I mean, I'm not a historian, um, but you can go look up the, the Canadian intern or American interns the, that, that were interned during the war, but essentially they were enemies of the state. Uh, they, they were, they lost all of their rights and possessions. So many, many Japanese Canadians were uh, entrepreneurs, a lot of them fishermen. Uh, they lost their boats. They lost their houses. They were... The whole fishery, the, fishery community, in, community. In, in British Columbia in particular, where, you know, there was such a vibrant fishing industry heritage around, built around by the Japanese Yeah, community. and all of that was, was taken. But, uh, you, you know, you asked, I mean, that happened, and that was a horrible part of history. But the one thing that I, I remember when I talked to my parents was, you know, yes, I mean, during during the internment, I'm sure they had grudges, but after the, after it was over, it was, okay, let's get on with our life. 
life. Let's, you know, go to school or educate or, or, you know, have children, have a family, make sure that the children are educated and they're, they're well taken care of. It, it wasn't a time to say, oh, woe is me. Yeah, that, um, that was really the biggest thing. I think that's, you know, amazingly generous towards the Canadian government, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly, and for those who maybe are less familiar with Canadian history, you know, right after the Canada having been, you know, that time still part of, you know, the the, the British Empire uh, was involved in World War II and therefore was at war with Japan. Once you have the bombing of Pearl Harbor and, uh, you know, that leading to then really a, a full scale engagement of, of Canada in, in the efforts um, also in the, in the Pacific. And, and of course, we see that in 1942, then we have this internment of what has ended up being predominantly just Japanese uh, descent, right? Canadians, although technically German descent Canadians were also declared enemies of the state, but people didn't know which people who were, you know, from which uh, descent lines if they were, you know, Caucasian white descent. And so inevitably it was mostly the Japanese Canadians that were signal out and 22,000 um, rounded up by the Canadian government and put in, I mean, maybe you would share... The living conditions I visited where those those locations where they were relocated to forcibly um, for yeah, different when, periods of time, right? When my parents and well, my parents' families were evicted or forcibly removed from their homes, uh, they were rounded up uh, no matter where they were from in BC or well, hundred there was a hundred mile line west of this hundred mile line. Um, they were rounded up and moved to Vancouver to what was I believe then called, well, it was called Hastings Park, which I believe now is called the PE. Uh, yeah. And they lived in horse barns, horse sheds, stables. or whatever they're called, you know, stables, that's the word, yes, um, in, you know, horrid conditions. Uh, and were eventually moved as, as um, intern camps were built in the interior of BC, uh, were, you know, I think at that point they were given the choice to repatriate to Japan or, or move, or maybe that happened a little later, but eventually they were moved into these camps in interior BC, which if you go visit today, there is actually one that I visited in in New Denver where my mother stayed. They've turned it into a memorial center. It's in a beautiful location. If you go as a tourist, it is a beautiful area. But, you know, in the middle of winter, living in a wooden shack with holes in it, with no insulation, with two or three families to a shed, it wasn't so beautiful. I don't don't imagine it. Right. Well, and again, when I read that history as a McGill undergrad, I just thought there was no due process. We have civil political liberties in a democracy, and yet there was no due process. There was no crime committed. There was no proof that any of them had done anything wrong. And the RCMP later revealed that they really had no foundations for suspecting the collaboration of the Japanese Canadian community with their fishing boats. They were, they were alleging they would, they would support Japan if they ever, they attacked North America and there was no evidence. And so the lack of, you know, the complete violation of democracy and of our, of our values of due process and of having rights and freedoms protected, I, I found so shameful as a Canadian when I was so young and just thought that is such a huge uh, shame on our past that we need to learn from and then do better to never have this kind of arbitrary use of racial descent markings on a body um, <clears throat> to deprive us of those those critical civil and political liberties. And of course, the economic side of what ended up destroying the Japanese Canadian community yeah. economic base. It's hard to because... know what, I mean, of course, I don't know if, if my families or friends and relatives did not lose what they had, who knows? I, you know, you don't know, you know, right. maybe, maybe one of them would have built a fishing empire. We don't know. I, we don't know. And right. again, I think mm. that that was the thing the takeaway was it happened let's move on mm. let's not worry about what could have been had the government not taken away the businesses the shops the restaurants the fishing boats etc it, it happened well and then we um, saw you know prime minister mckenzie 19, 1944 forcibly then relocate everybody east yeah, of the rock east and the so further that, is that east. how you then ended up i mean you're from montreal born and raised but is that why your family obviously was in quebec yeah the, the further east from what my mother and, and father tell me the further east you went um as during the war, you were moved, you know, certainly from Vancouver into interior BC and then in different parts of across the country. But the further east you went, I guess, the less 
um, danger you were. So the freer you were, the, <clears throat> there was a sense of if you're farther east, then you're less danger and therefore you were going to be less strict upon you. I'm not sure that the racism changed, but from what I, you know, when I asked my mom about the racism piece, the only piece that I do remember that alluded to a little bit of racism based on, you know, appearance. Um, as I said at the beginning, I don't, I, I speak very basic Japanese. My parents were, are born and raised Canadian, grew up speaking English and learned Japanese, you know, from their parents and, you know, in the little school rooms and whatnot, but went to school in English. Um, so their Japanese is, is fairly basic. Uh, therefore, they didn't speak Japanese, Japanese to us. But one thing that my mom told me, I remember this, is growing up, you know, once the war was over, whether they were in back in Vancouver or somewhere else or in Montreal, the idea was to not be Japanese, to speak English, to assimilate to some degree. Obviously, they can't change their appearance with the jet black mm -hmm. hair and the dark eyes or whatever. But to not um, stand out. Not to stand out by speaking different language. So growing up, they spoke to us in English. You know, that's partially because they aren't fluent in, in Japanese. They're fluent in English. Um, yeah. So it's natural speaking your, in your mother tongue. But we didn't, none of us grew up speaking Japanese. With your parents? With my parents. So that would have been, that's the one maybe downside of all of this is they're hiding as right. they grew up. And, and then as they raised us to be Canadian. They felt and, they had to su like suppress that part a of little their, bit, yeah. themselves and their identity to fit into the yeah. times of that period of Canadian yes. history when we yeah. weren't so multicultural or, or celebrating of diversity at that point. Yeah. I mean, ironically, growing up, you know, in, in Montreal, um, which, well, Canada is a very diverse culture. You know, Montreal, I, I always think is very much, it's not a melting pot. There are so many very distinct neighborhoods, the, the you know, the Italian, the Greek, the Jewish, etc. cetera, um, neighborhoods. But I grew up, you know, of course, one of the few um, Japanese people in my high school and, and friends, I got the question of, you know, where are you from? But you know, I know that they, I never took it as an insult, as a, as a racist comment. It was just, they're curious because they see somebody who looks a little different and they actually mean, where's your family, you know, and originally, because um, the vast majority of those people, you know, be it, be them, you know, Italian or Greek uh, or, or Spanish or whatever it is, maybe they're white and, and don't stand out as being from a different country right away. A lot of them were actually, their parents were born and raised. So they're they're even less Canadian theoretically than I am. Um, so I never really took it as... And they as, probably always maybe get asked it if they've got a, an and Maybe they do. Yeah. And I, and I never took it as, uh, took offense to it. But I, what I've come to realize is um, now that I've been in Japan and I... I, I look, the, so in Canada, I didn't look the part because, you know, I'm, I'm Asian, but now I'm in Japan. I look the part. Um, I never get the question, but by far. You're with me though. I, I'm an, yeah, I'm, I'm an ab absolute foreigner. Sorry. I'm, I'm not Japanese. So it's, I'm very much more out of place. I'm outing you. Here, yeah. <laughs> as a foreigner. Um, as you know, as as opposed to being back home in Canada. So. Well, and I, I think it's so interesting that the Canadian government at the time, the two options were move, you know, east of the Rockies, or we'll repatriate you, repatriate you back to Japan where you've never lived before. Yeah. yeah. Like, why I, would that have been an option? And I, I assume that certain, obviously, certain numbers of people did maybe decide that, wow, it, there's no welcome for them in Canada. And maybe they did give up and go home. And the ones who, who stayed needed to have that kind of generosity towards the Canadian, to, towards Canada as a country to be forgiving, to, to then want to stay and still feel like there's a place for them to contribute yeah I, I think like my mom you know when they got out east um found a you know a loving family friends and and whatnot and quickly you know felt at home i don't think there was uh, there are certainly not horror stories of of racism absolutely there had to have been there's no doubt, but I certainly, it wasn't a highlight when I spoke to my, to my parents about their experience. Well, and often it's just like the water you swim in. It's, it's kind of the microaggressions that just sort of happen all the time. And sometimes it's a microaggression and sometimes it's just because people are curious about you and it's not necessarily meant to be, you know, taxing. I mean, 22 odd years that I 
I constantly, the minute I step out of my little community, right, and people don't know me all of a sudden, then it's where are you from and why are you here and why do you speak Japanese and when are you going home? <laughs> what do you, what, what? Like, so the, it's often just very much about a curiosity towards me in a, in a positive way, but it yeah. also can be heavy to have to always constantly be sharing the, the, repetition the, pri- of it all. the privacy of my life choices to anybody who decides that they are, have a right to be curious about why this yeah. you know visibly this white looking white person, person who who thinks that this is her home community for 20 years but <laughs> is constantly being told you know that we don't know that this is your home community and you don't look the part so you need to explain yourself if you think yeah. that, you know what where you fit in so yeah that does it does it does have a taxing element um so we have this uh kind of a reverse dynamic going on uh where i fit in in canada and never ask those never get asked those questions exactly uh for my first half of my years of my life in canada and then the second half of my life in in japan i'm I'm constantly in your shoes we have a little character foil going on there Um, so, I mean, I guess one of the things that I often find and, and I'm reminded and certainly, I guess, becoming a parent, I became really, I mean, I knew this in theory as a political scientist that, you know, in Canada, we had this democratic innovation that we would make our constitution recognize the multicultural heritage of Canada and take that to be worth celebrating and protecting legally and politically as a shared value, right? And mm-hmm. And we and we we recognize in the Constitution the you know presence and contributions of First Nations in Canada, uh, and that legacy that we need to take seriously as a as a democratic project, right? And that's still ongoing. Um, so, but thinking about how then we as a Canadian country, really, if you look back to World War II, where race was conflated with national identity and loyalty and a sense of who is us. Right. And if you were white British passing or French French speaking white passing, you were us Canadian. But if you were not, if you were racialized Asian or or black or other, you were not necessarily seen to be loyal like us, one of us on our team and part of the Canadianness that we saw in World War II. So pivot forward then, you know, the last 70 years of Canadian evolution, I guess, of the democratic project of then saying we're going to separate out. You can be a legal and political member of this country called Canada, but there's no assumption that you have to have a certain racial or ethnic makeup, like or yeah, composition. I think something that I've sort of come to learn, you know, certainly in discussions with you, you've really broadened my experience. But certainly, the, as we just alluded to about the change from, uh, you know, my experience in Canada and now at my experience here in Japan, is that, you know, culture, you know, the, the culture you or the culture you experience and who you are, the language and all that doesn't come from your bloodline. You know, and I'm the perfect example. As I said, my parents are both uh, Japanese born from parents that are Japanese national. So my four grandparents, as we would say, 100%. 100%. My four grandparents are Japanese national and, you know, raising two children. If we think about bloodline. Yeah, bloodline, 100% bloodline, which in Japan, I believe is really important but i am the farthest thing from being japanese uh, i am canadian i i mean i i grew up and i said it earlier i sort of call myself japanese canadian but after having lived here for 6 years i'm really i've come to the realization that i'm japanese with uh, sorry canadian with japanese heritage uh i'm not of i am not japanese although i am of japanese bloodline so, like, so i culture think culture and language culture culturally or linguistically culturally linguistically you know mindset uh, mindset mannerisms and and <laughs> and you you know uh, being the 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 20 year veteran understand all of these things are you know poking you don't do that you can't do that that's not japanese um and i'm you know i'm saying well, it'll bug I, people i can do that don't. in canada <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I remember being so, I remember laughing out loud because I would say, you know what, how people see us when we walk down the street in Japan? You know how people see us? What do you think they see? And what was your answer? We're we're a banana in the egg. Well, but at first you told me that you, you saw yourself as the Canadian guy. Oh, I'm the Canadian guy. And yeah, I, said, I, I still nobody do. Nobody in Japan sees you as the Canadian guy yeah. who's walking down the street. And you were like shocked. Prior prior like, to prior to pandemic, of course, standing in the train in Tokyo, <laughs> I I you know, I'm looking around and I would pick pick out foreigners and I go, oh, there's a foreigner. But I would never think that 
sorry, you know, there's another foreigner like me. There's another foreigner, white, you know, tall white guy, uh, you know, whatever, all of these different people that they're foreigners just like me. Maybe I should go talk to them because they're foreigners and I'm foreigner and everything is going to be cool. But of course, they're looking at me going, well, there's another Japanese guy. There's another Japanese guy. There's another Japanese woman. There's another, I'm just a Japanese Um, person by appearance. And so what is, what is the, I mean, for those who maybe don't know the expression, what does the banana and the egg mean? Uh, (laughs) Banana and the egg being banana being me yellow on the outside and absolutely white on the inside and that's that's the exact for, for your culture me. you're canadian or I'm you're purely canadian i in in my head i am white i am canadian i'm not but jackie white on the outside but <laughs> knows and understands completely all of the japanese <clears throat> mannerisms culture language and everything like that and and i think very much thinks uh, more like a Japanese person than I do or understands those things. So we are the banana and the egg couple being the, you know, where we have these conversations. And I, I, I joke about this conversation loop that happens where if we sit down at a restaurant or a, we're at a store or wherever it is, and there's the two of us and there's a, a Japanese person serving us. Um, I think there is also, this is not just uh, a culture, uh, sorry, a visual thing in, in Japan. They're going to talk to the male. They're going to, they're going to talk to the man. They're not going to talk to Jackie, they're going to talk to me for whatever. And we can get into those reasons later. But the conversation would start by looking at me and and the person would start talking and I'm oblivious to what they're saying. And Jackie will respond. So the conversation goes from the person to me and then Jackie would respond. (laughs) And then the person would continue to look at me and talk to me. And then, you know, and it would go around like this, right, Jackie, you'd, you'd be responding and I'd be sort of "Hmm," until I get to the point where I'll, I'll pull out my phone and just turn away and pretend to look because I, I don't want to be part of this. Con- I can't be part of this conversation. You really got to talk to Jackie. She understands. Um, and, you know, that just goes on and on and on and on. And it happened. It still happened when we go somewhere. That I think that people, will be. People yeah. don't know us happening happening often and and yeah you wonder if it's yeah certainly on on first instance maybe it's because you're looking japanese obviously and depending on certainly if you're in certain contexts professionally often people look towards men more than they look towards women to have the answers (laughs) so and you know the head of the household dynamic in japan that is still quite valued uh that gives a men a certain position to i guess speak for the family and things like that yeah, I mean it's interesting, and I I think what I I find interesting for us is when you, when you first I mean we knew each other as friends in Canada, um, and so as friends you know that some of those things don't flesh out quite as in detail as when you're actually now at life partnering, and and I would find that when you you know when we were here I really felt like we were in an international marriage. <laughs> and I was like we're two Canadians, but whoa, like I just felt like that I had a lot of um, integration to do to help in some ways you understand the relations of what we would call Shinrai Kanke that I have in my 22 odd years relationships of people here in, in Chikuma Nagano and how they look to my spouse to be a certain way or fulfill certain relationships of trust and speaking on behalf of like being a part of this family as an extension of my trust with them. Then they give that benefit of trust to you and they expect you to give back to them, whether you know them or not. It's just, uh, you know, you're a part of the family now, like you've married in or something. And so now those expectations are being placed on you, but you were oblivious. And I thought, oh, I have to really sort of, you know, like bring you up to speed a little bit about what they're expecting. And then how do we navigate that? Because it's no longer just this, well, I'm an individual and I'm me and those are your friends and those are your relations of trust, but that doesn't have any bearing on me, but in Japan or in this particular, and I think in Canada, we do have those deep ties of relationship, you know, relations of trust across family formations and extended family formations that you do in some ways have the marrying in factor, right? Where there are roles that the in-law or the daughter-in-law end up taking on or the son-in-law taking taking on. Um, but how that plays out specifically in, in rural Japan, in Northern Nagano, I, I, I was feeling like I need to... I, need I to, needed a course before I, I came. <laughs> sort of explain some of those nuances um, for certain of our re- really strong ties here, who, of course, now you've come to to build strong relations of trust with too. It's been a journey. Been, been beautiful. <laughs> a lot of hand-holding. To see, to see unfold. And then, you know, yeah. you're the one baking them cookies and taking cookies over to them and, and thinking ahead to say, oh, we, we should, you know, they, they brought us vegetables. We need, we need to go deliver something back. How about oh, I, I'll bake cookies? And you bake cookies. And I think, oh, thank God he thought of it because I hadn't thought of it and, and, you know, whatever. So the, the journey is really exciting in that sense from my perspective is too. And I think we both have a Canadian side of ourselves and a 
Japanese side of ourselves and it oscillates as to when we're in which mode. And then knowing when we're in which node so that we're on the same page with one another is also kind of an interesting. I think it's interesting <laughs> you point out me having a, a Japanese side, uh, you know, mode. I don't think of it, but you do point out to me that sometimes I do do things that are of Very Japanese. Japanese mode, but I don't realize it. Um, yeah. And, and I just, there. I see the influences of your parents. And their okay. their sort of Japanese cultural elements that they've got from in the way they interact, um, and it's a really lovely you know part of them that I see as well. That I see. so so much um, often echoing my experience of elder Japanese here in rural Nagano, who I have relationships with, who have that similar gentle, just gentle way of being, and they're so generous, and you know they take life in a certain speed and non-judgmentalness towards others. And there's a, I don't know, I feel that in the, so many of the, the Jijan Bachan in our community here in, in rural Nagano, and then also in the way that your parents in, interacted with, with me and brought, brought that forward. So I, I want to pivot a little bit the conversation if I could, because I, yes. I did on the poster say you were in, you know, global IT architect and I didn't, we haven't dived into that yet. Um, no. There's so much to talk about on, on your personal history as well, but maybe you could talk to me a little bit about, I mean, you said we had our international marriage crash course when you joined me in Rural Nagano. Um, but then you also had to face, I think, a lot of culture shock at work. So can you talk to me about how, how your journey as a global IT architect has, has unfolded and what's been going, what you like about your work and also maybe the cultural shocks that you've experienced? Well, I, I remember... <laughs> Oddly enough, I remember quite distinctly sitting at the airport in, um, uh, I don't know what, just before, I guess maybe it was Vancouver. Um, I said, oh, I should do a blog. <laughs> I'm not a writer, but I just said, I'm going to, and I remember the very first thing that I wrote, and I'm sure it exists somewhere if I could find it. And I said, I'm moving to a place where I'm going to become illiterate and knowing because I don't speak Japanese and I don't read it and all that sort of stuff and write it. Um, but I sort Outrageous. of, or crazy, <laughs> but I, I, I had in the back of my mind this notion that because I'm Japanese Canadian, I'll figure out the culture. There won't be this big culture shock that I'm just going to, you know, no problem. Yeah, I can't read. I can't write. I can't speak. But the rest is going to be easy. Well, that was a bit of a shock. Um, certainly on the work front. I mean, you, you touch base about work. Um, and I, I think I, I read a lot about this um, early on, yeah, the Japanese work ethic, if you will. But what I've discovered, you know, working in, in, in Japan is that to a great extent, there is an expectation of working an exceptionally long day. Um, it's not enforced uh, where you leave and somebody's going to stop you at the door, um, but you do get that sort of pressure a little bit. And, you know, having raised, uh, you know, two great boys that are now adults back in Canada, um, when I, when they were young, you know, I was involved. I was, you know, helping a little bit with their school, but, you know, I coached them in soccer. So we did stuff, uh, you know, went off to Starbucks together and, and, and that sort of thing. So I was involved in their life. So I was used to, you know, at the end of the day is, you know, five or five thirty or, or, you know, maybe six o'clock. And, and certainly in the world of IT, um, it's, constantly moving um so you do need to stay stay abreast of things and and sometimes yeah there was some late hours the evening here and there it happened but the norm was you know the office was empty you know i'm in the office at, at five o'clock you know you can shoot a cannon down the, there's very few people in the office but certainly in in japan come six o'clock pre-covid no one's um, packing up <laughs> no one's packing up it's still packed it's still really crowded um but yet at, you know, 8.30 or whatever the start of the day is, there's a lineup to get in the building. So everybody's there on time. So it's not a flex hour thing. It's not a sort of shift hour thing. It's just everybody or a lot of people work late. Now, certainly in today's world, uh, different than 10 years ago, the technology, the ease of, you know, everybody's smartphones and tablets and, and remote access to everything, you know, notwithstanding COVID, um, you get, you know, emails flying back and forth and and chat messages did you check that server did what about this or how about this or what about can we and it just goes back and forth throughout the evening and you're in a global company that's and a global by company. all time zones exactly so all you get time. people you know at the end of our day it's the beginning of the day in europe so the guys in in europe are, are you know contacting people and and it it's never seems to end uh and it's very difficult there. It's very difficult to unplug, to say no, um, because, you know, I've got a family here and, and I have, you know, their responsibilities, but the things that I want to do, you know, I, I, it's not like I'm, I'm saying, 
uh, oh, I have to do these things at home. These are things that I want to participate in. So to get away from that was difficult because I, as I said earlier, I, I thought it was going to be really easy. Ah, I'm going to come to Japan. I'm, I'm Japanese. I'm going to just fit in. And, and there's the momentum, like the environment in which you all of a sudden are the yeah. new guy six or eight years or whatever, you know, they're, they're not packing up and you're like, why is nobody packing up? It's yeah. like the end of the day, like labor code says we're done. Are we done? Like, have, have I not done enough? And so then how do you gracefully exit because you do have child rearing responsibilities and especially if none of often, I think a lot of your colleagues were younger than you and maybe didn't even yeah. have kids yet. So didn't have the same pressures, but they should still go home and have their hobbies or, exactly or I don't know, <laughs> go date or I don't know, <laughs> swim or, you know, whatever. I, I, finding that work-life balance for men, I feel to be such a challenge in Japan in particular, that's not named or acknowledged and how it maybe is very much the detriment of men's mental health. I think it's a huge, a a huge problem. And, and, uh, you know, you're right. I think as the new guy, it was difficult, but certainly as, as time has gone by and I've gotten to develop relationship, work relationships, but also friendships with a lot of the people that I work with, um, they certainly understand. And I do not at all feel any kind of pressure anymore that, Oh, we're at, it's six thirty. Where's Mitz? How come Mitz isn't still working? And how come I can't reach Mitz to 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 do this? But I think you've thing? been very strong in and, setting you know, I, I stood strong up and boundaries and, no. and sort of educating and being open about your Canadian understandings of family life. Yeah. And how we as a two career family juggle as a yes. team constantly and with two kids under 10, it's, it's, it's a heck of a lot of coordination yeah. to be managing all of that all the time. Right. And I think there's been a journey for all of your colleagues and, 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 and people who know you about how you do have all of these things you like to be involved with and, and want to be involved with and are great at, obviously. <laughs> I'm so grateful. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, I always think how we were at the point where when, you know, second child arrives and it's like two is exponentially harder. Um, <laughs> like, right. I mean, holy crow. And uh, so then who is, I mean, just even managing who's, who's on daycare drop, who's on daycare pickup. And then you're saying, well, we're going to use an IT tool here. I've set it up. This is a shared calendar. I'm plugging in when you pick up and I'm plugging in when you drop and I'm plugging in. And then we would every single night go, okay, who's dropping, who's picking up, who's dropping, who is in the calendar so that we wouldn't forget our kids, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, the, the whole week was had to be laid out because it was so, as you said, so, so crazy with, you know, two careers. <laughs> And two young children. And a long commute to daycare because we couldn't find daycare near home in Tokyo, which was real, a challenge. Huge, huge challenge. I mean, uh, that was a really, a real burden. And it was very, a really difficult time for, for the family, for us as a couple, uh, for at work, for you, you at work, for me at work. It was just really stressful. Um, you know, but I think our togetherness, our, you know, saying, you know, that it wasn't going to be a 50-50, just let's tally up all the things and say, okay, you're responsible this half and you're responsible for this half. No, it was, let's look at your strengths. What, you know, what do you do well, Jackie? And and certainly the language part, the legal part, all of that stuff, you know, of course you excel. Uh, and, and even in English, I think if we were living back in Canada, and... you would still be better at it than I am. <laughs> um, you know, but there's pieces that I'm better at. So, you know, it's not about let's divvy them up. It's let's say, who's, well, and let's I think work we tried to do that. We tried to do a little bit of that in the beginning. We did, and I yeah. was dying under having to cook. Oh my God. I was just, <gasps> I was trying to menu plan and multi multitask cooking and unhooking so I can go think and plan to cook the meals. And then I'm not good at it. And when you finally said, you know what, <laughs> what are you, you don't just let me handle all the menu planning and the cooking. And I went, oh, thank God. Because yeah. not my strength. And that takes a huge mental load off what I'm not good at. And I would much rather, yes, handle school communications and all the Japanese and all the whatever that has to be done in Japanese. And, yeah, and, other and I pieces. think that's a key piece is that work on your strengths. And that's something at work, you know, is there's, you know, people who are good at X and people that are good at Y. So although you do want to continue to train people, and I think that's a part to something that doesn't. I don't know if we, we don't seem to do enough in, in, in Japan is, you know, that training piece, but to get, uh, uh, to, to build on people's strengths. Is, and is use great. the diversity of our strengths to real advantage, right. In that sense as our team. And yeah, absolutely. I've yeah. had, I've had to lean on you a lot for all of my IT infrastructure and understanding how I need to set things up for enjoy. And I've been very <laughs> grateful to have all of that in-house, uh, you know, tech advising, because otherwise yeah. I wouldn't know how to set things up and make it secure for my company. And, 
things that I have to think about. So, so that certainly is um, certainly has been a, a blessing to to combine our our strengths in that way. And I think it's um, it makes us a stronger couple and a stronger household. And hopefully, yeah. our children are seeing us role model this so that they won't have stereotypes, you know, around what you can or can't do because you're a girl or a boy or whatever it is, um, you know. And I think I guess another area where I think really I've enjoyed collaborating with you has been on these Lego uh, P- Lego your Lego hobby, which now time is fleeting, but we have sort of a couple of minutes to talk about. Um, We've been doing now, well, two big Lego, multicultural Lego play festivals in Northern Nagano here, featuring all of your collection and your genius around Lego building and design and getting children to play um, through the Lego club that you lead for the International Association here that's, you know, been going strong for 20 years, but then we could add in your your passion for Lego. I, I think it's been, this is another great example of, of, you know, leveraging strengths where you you know, your strength is, you're certainly seeing the vision of, of what could benefit, you know, Chikuma or Chikuma International Association and, and, and what, how we can introduce new people, um, hopefully engage, certainly because this is Lego, which, although I know the Lego corporation is really working hard to make it less gender based but it is mm. i would gather still more boys playing with lego but i think mm. they're very working very hard at bringing in girls but maybe this would engage the fathers and say hey so you know you you invi- you vision all of this and you you come up with all these great ideas and all I, I see you with in. our kids. I see you teaching our kids on hours and on hours doing all this Lego building with them and they are enraptured. Yeah, they, they love it. I mean, it's, it's great. I think it's great. It's great bonding. Uh, you know, our, my, my boys back home um, in, you know, growing up for many, many years, Christmas was Lego, Lego, <laughs> oh, Lego, what is Lego? It was, you know, just, now. it was just, you know, obscene amounts of Lego. Um, and to this day, actually the, my oldest son is, still and has a youtube yes. channel he still does, yes. does uh, the lego because there's a huge um what's called it's called an afall community adult fan of lego uh right. afall uh, there is a huge community um, of building all kinds of great things and i think that that lego itself has been or is a great tool in fact the lego corporation uh, has what i deem as a separate arm of the, the lego education division where right. they have uh developed kits and education platforms for schools. And there are schools that teach these programs. Uh, it's a great way to teach, you know, STEM, but not only STEM. When we might think about Lego as being, you know, building bricks to build houses mm. or cars or airplanes or whatever it be, is. Right? But I think it, it, it much like reading a book, it's not about just reading the book and getting to the end. It's learning new new words or ways to use words and develop that that creative um, part of your brain well i think that's what lego does too it, it says well i gotta build you know i have to build something round with square bricks how do i do it well you use your imagination you know sure it's never going to be exact and and i think that's really good one of the things that i remember i i know i've i've been teaching our kids a lot about lego you know they get sometimes would get stress about you know putting the bricks in and then oh i made a mistake and i always say you know it's lego no harm no foul take it apart and put it together again that's the great thing about lego there isn't one there's no real thing as a mistake but there's no failure there's no failure and that's something in japan where i've i've sort of seen back to you know jumping back a little bit to work is mm. that there is this um no willingness to stick your neck out because you don't want to fail. You don't want to make that mistake. Whereas, you know, with Lego, just do it. And if it's, it's never wrong. It's, you know, maybe not. It it kind of takes away the space of experimentation and play out of work that I think could drive innovation in such an, not just innovation for the benefit of the companies, but also enjoyment in the journey of the work, right? If you can have that sense of play and a psychological safety that you can make a mistake and it won't be the end of your career. Yes. And I think that would, that's, this is something that I'm certainly trying to, uh, to teach teach our kids is that you know and the kids of chikuma in Nagano. and and, and chikuma with with the lego clubs that we we do is the that festival here we just yeah. build and if you there is no mistake you just build and it is what it is and if you don't like it take it apart and start over and there's no there's no harm no foul well on that amazing takeaway note i mean i think if we can all certainly find that space of i guess 
play, innovation, using our inner our diversities, playing to our strengths, but also learning to be open to other people's teachings and their diversities that can help us evolve and morph through learning their experiences and uh, building those connections and bonding through these experiences together of enjoyment and play and work. I mean, if all work could be somewhat more playful and enjoyable, I think, you know, it, it blends into your hobbies and then there will be these different boundaries around what we consider to be the FaceTime day job. Uh, in the future of work that it, I think is both exciting, but it also has to be democratizing so that it doesn't enslave us <laughs> as well. And that's the tension, right? That's really the attention that we get. So I want to thank you, uh, Mitz, for sharing about your identities, yourselves, your multiple selves, depending on where you are and which period of your life and which country you're living in, which hat you're wearing at any given day. I certainly am blessed to experience that every single day of my life uh, with you as my life partner. And I'm very grateful that you would join us today on the show. Well, I'm, I'm grateful to have been chosen as your, your first um, to sort of, I hopefully, you know, made it inviting for the rest of your thought partners that will come on and share their uh, insights and views into, you know, their, their uh, ex life experiences and business experiences. Uh, but it's just been a lot of fun, a, a lot of fun to share and talk about all of this sort of stuff. And I hope that the, the your listeners here um, can take away a little bit of the few bits that I've shared and, and be of interest to, you know, the, whether it be something as dark as the Japanese internment or something as fun as the Lego, right. uh, the Lego play that we do here in Chikuma. Excellent. Well, and on that note, I'd love to share an announcement. Um, so I hope that you will all join us next week. We are I'm very excited to welcome Shu Matsuo Post, who will be the second person featured, and he will be talking about his book, um, I took her name and his journey into feminism and trying to fight for his right as a man to choose his last name and that he wanted to share it with his wife and have his name be in that, in that dynamic and his journey into vulnerability, masculinity and feminism. I also would love to just mention that, of course, Enjoy Diversity and Innovation has offerings. We have a multidisciplinary team, consultants, educators, and facilitators. We offer workshops, training, um, and of course, consulting for audits of your company infrastructure and of your policy ecosystems. If that should help you move the dial in this area, check out our website, www.en-joi.com. And on that note, thank you very much for joining. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play, where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.